0: This is Harney's Offshore Litigation Podcast. My name is Ian Mann and I'm delighted to be joined today by Victor Joffey, QC of Temple Chambers. Victor, this is in fact the third time that we tried to schedule this because uh, on the previous two occasions you had to run off to court to get injunctions. So I hope you won't be going anywhere during the course of this podcast.
1: Yeah, I'll try not to, Ian. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Victor. Um, we are going to be discussing today uh, a UK Supreme Court case of Sevilla. I'm looking at my producer who's been lecturing me on how to pronounce that, and Marex, a case where the Supreme Court in fact constituted a panel of seven rather than five judges. Why was that?
1: Well, the case involved reflective loss, and reflective loss had been discussed in earlier House of Lords decision, Johnson and Gore would, mm. and it was necessary to ask the Supreme Court to review that earlier decision, hence the
0: larger panel. And the decision being one about reflective loss was really, rather important. And some commentators have said that because it was so important and because it was a split decision, that they should have had a bench of, say, 11. Do you think there's any merit in that? Yes, I do.
1: Yes, I, th- I think it's a very important point uh, of company law. And um, I think it would have benefited jurisprudence if there had been a bench of 11.
0: Very quickly, the facts were that Mr. Sevieryha owned control to British Virgin Islands companies. Those companies were sued by uh, the appellant in the appeal called Marex and Marex were successful at first instance in England. They obtained a judgment for over five million dollars and costs. The learned judge in that case gave the parties a copy of his draft judgment in the normal way, due to be handed down a number of days later. In the interim, Mr. Sabieha appears to have caused his two BVI companies to transfer over nine and a half million US dollars from the their London company's accounts, uh, make it impossible, it is said, for Marex to receive payment on the judgment debt. He then goes a step further and he places both those BVI companies into liquidation. And in fact, he seeks Chapter 15 recognition in the US, but that's unsuccessful. Um, Marex, unsurprisingly, then, brings a fresh claim uh, in England seeking damages from Mr. Sevilla in tort for inducing or procuring a violation of its rights, uh, and avoiding the judgment. Judgment and other intentional economic torts. His defence, uh, very clever, Mr Sevilla, defence, is that actually Marex's claims are barred by the principle of reflective loss. Um, I mean, I had always understood reflective loss to only apply to shareholders. Has that traditionally been the case?
1: Well, that, that's how it all started out. Um, mm. The origin of the doctrine is Prudential and Newman number two, where the English Court of Appeal mm. uh, held that it applied to claims brought by shareholders in respect of diminution in the value of their shares or diminution in the flow of distributions, which had been caused by a wrongdoer who had acted in breach of duty both to. The company and to the shareholder, but subsequent cases have expanded that. Firstly, to include shareholders who were creditors. A case called Gardner and Parker in the English Court of Appeal, mm. and then subsequently in the Marex case itself, where the English Court of Appeal held that the reflective loss rule applied to creditors who were not shareholders. And all of that stemmed from Johnson and Wood. and in a number of cases, not just in those two, uh, Johnson and Gorewood had been used to justify an extension of the reflective loss principle beyond the four corners of Prudential and Newman.
0: Just so our listeners can understand, what was the purpose of the reflective loss principle? I mean, it's a rule of law, essentially. Why did the judges starting Prudential think that it was a good idea? Well,
1: essentially, two reasons. One is that if the company suffers loss, then only the company can sue in respect of that loss.
0: That's the old Foss and Harbottle rule, essentially.
1: And indeed, the other part of Foss and Harbottle is that the shareholders can't complain if the proper organs of the company, carry out a particular act or bail to carry out a particular act. Mm. Uh, And so that was essentially the basis on which Court of Appeal formulated their propositions uh, in Prudential and
0: Newman in the first place. And so I suppose the next question to ask then, Victor, is what would happen in circumstances where the company failed to pursue a claim for its loss? Could the shareholders then step in?
1: Well, no. The Court of Appeal in Prudential and Newman made it very clear that if the company didn't pursue its loss, then that wouldn't enable the shareholder to do so. And indeed, that was a point which was picked up on by the
0: majority of the Supreme Court in Marek Sensevieja. So, Victor, the next natural stage to look at then is what approach was taken by the House of Lords in Johnson and Gorewood in considering uh, the earlier Prudential case?
1: Well, it's a long and complicated story, Ian, but if I can just summarise it in this way, when you look at the judgment of Lord Bingham, that's very much in line with what you see in Prudential and Newman, and he expressed the rule very much as you would see it in the Court of Appeal, and to a certain extent, that's the orthodoxy about the rule. The the judgment of Lord Millard was somewhat broader. Lord Millet did justify the rule in, in a much broader sense than Lord Bingham. In particular, he um, relied on principles of double recovery, he relied on a causation, but the key concern which uh, emerges from his judgement is where he seems to suggest that the no-reflective loss rule applies uh, not just to diminutions in the value of shares and in uh, diminution in flow of distributions, but it also applies to any other sums of money which the shareholder might recover against the company in whatever capacity, such as
0: employee. And when we get to Sevilla, in fact, the majority decision given by Lord Reid is quite critical of Lord Millett's expanded approach, and he draws us back to Lord Bingham, and he calls him... Lord Bingham's three propositions. That's correct, yes. I should just say by way of a footnote that
1: the uh, other three law lords in Johnson Gore Wood gave judgments which, to a certain extent, agreed with Lord Millett, but the judgment of Lord Millett has been the influential one, and that was the one which led to the English Court of Appeal in Gardner and Parker saying that it applied to claims by shareholders in capacity of creditors, and that was what led to the Court of Appeal in Marex saying that the reflective loss rule applied to creditors who were not shareholders.
0: Victor, we, we, we should just mention at this stage that actually in the Court of Final Appeal in Hong Kong, you appeared before Lord Millett on the very point. I did indeed. So that was a- a- after, <laughs> of course, Johnson and Gould. After Johnson and yeah. Gould. yeah. I, I should say that that, that, nice. was, that was in
1: relation to a different issue. That was in relation to whether or not the so-called exception in Giles and Rind applied and that exception was established by the English Court of Appeal where they said that if the defendant had so conducted himself as to prevent the company being able to pursue its claim, then the shareholder could claim. And Lord Millett said that shouldn't be followed; that didn't apply in Hong Kong. And indeed, we see in Marex in the Supreme Court, uh, Lord Reed in the majority, saying that that exception and the cases which followed it, such as Perry and Day, should not be followed. They're mm. wrong.
0: Although it's, it's interesting, as Lord Reed does express, he says one can sympathise with the Court of Appeal's sense of unattractiveness of the defendant's position in that particular case of Giles and Ryan, who essentially discontinued a claim due to the inability to find security of So it, It's really- A case that really turned on its facts. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, the problem with uh, the reflective
1: loss rule is that it does give rise to hard cases. And you, you do often, as the court of Appeal plainly did in that case, feel sympathy for somebody who is barred from recovery
0: so carry on with our trot through these mighty um, big cases and, and trying to, to summarize them with some brevity, taking us to Marex. we 've already discussed how Lord Reed has brought it back to how he describes lord bingham 's three propositions. Yeah. And so the case of Marex is now a more limited, refreshed version of reflective loss, is it?
1: Yes, that's a good way of putting it. It refreshes the original decision in Prudential and Newman, and it makes it very clear it's a rule of law. It only applies to diminutions in shareholdings and diminutions in flow of distributions. Um, It doesn't apply any further than that, and there are no exceptions to the rule as per Giles and Rind, etc.
0: And in particular, it doesn't apply to creditors correct yes it only applies to shareholders and, and i mean one can see the logic uh, of that i mean that the losses that a shareholder suffers are very different uh, to a creditor and a, a creditor is not part of the share capital of a company they are third parties who've chosen to lend to the company and might, as Lord Reed says, might have security over the company. And the final distribution on a winding up for a shareholder is very different to the rights of creditors. So one can see the logic in that.
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: We ought to talk about the dissenting judgment given by Lord Sales that also found favour with Lady Hale and Lord Kitchen. Do you think that other courts in the English common law world, for example, the offshore Caribbean courts, the offshore Channel Island courts, or the Court of Final Appeal, in Hong Kong or the court in Singapore might take a different view and might find favour with the, the dissenting judgment of, of Lord Sales. Actually, that, that
1: raises a number of points, And What Lord Sales says is that properly analysed, Prudential and Newman does not provide authority for the proposition which Lord Reed and the majority have found. And so he effectively says that there is no rule against reflective loss. And where you've got competing claims by a shareholder and his company against, a defendant, then normal rules apply. Double recovery, of course, applies, and it has to be worked out effectively on a case-by-case basis, which is a very interesting theory. But of course, it doesn't represent the law in England because the majority have reached their opposite conclusion. Some of the courts in foreign jurisdictions have already made the the choice. They apply reflective loss rules, but they apply it very much as Lord Sales suggests. Singapore is one such example where the courts will take procedural steps, for example, to yeah. avoid uh, double recovery. So there are those jurisdictions where this doesn't really arise, and in, in a sense it's an amalgam of the two approaches in the Supreme Court. So far as Hong Kong is concerned, courts have a choice really between Johnson and Gore Wood, which was effectively affirmed in the Waddington and Chan case, or they have a choice presumably between the majority or the minority decisions in Marek's.
0: There are three possible routes, actually. Three possible yeah, routes, yeah. yes. Fascinating.
1: So far as other jurisdictions whose final court of appeal is the Privy Council one would have thought that they would be unwilling to follow anything other than the majority particularly since if an appeal goes to the Privy Council from one of the courts of appeal who feed up to the Privy Council, that those courts of appeal would take the view, well, it's a recent case and it's unlikely that the Privy Council would be prepared to open up again the law, which has already been exhaustively
0: discussed Mm. in in Marix. But what of Lord Sales' logic? I mean, you do a lot of valuation-type cases uh, in in your shareholder dispute work. I mean, what of... Lord Sales' logic that actually when one is calculating the value of a company, one looks at discounted cash flow price to earnings, the, the the value of shares is what people believe the future income or profits of the company will be, and that's it's, it's got nothing to do with its net asset value or, or its assets. So, so even if a company successfully brings a claim against a wrongdoer, after the wrongdoer has caused for a company's assets to be misappropriated in some way, the return of those assets is, is actually actually very different in terms of compensation to to the loss to the shareholder. So isn't it quite attractive to let shareholders uh, have their own claims, even for diminution of value of their shares and uh, the loss of of, of the flow of dividends?
1: I I don't think you can really dispute the logic. And I, I think that you're right. It would make sense from one point of view to allow shareholders to have their own claims. But that logic is also taken into account by Lord Reed, because that's one of the reasons why he says that Lord Millett was wrong in Johnson and Gore Wood, because Lord Millet effectively said that a share is a proportionate share of the company's assets. And Lord Reed criticizes that. Yes, he does. But that there is something to be said on both sides of this argument. Yes, it's certainly possible to approach it the way that Lord Sales suggests, but I think the attraction, certainly for the majority in the Supreme Court, was the promotion of certainty, and that you don't have these types of issues having to be litigated out, because you know what the position is as a matter of mm-hmm. law before you start. Now. You can certainly make an argument to say that isn't the right position. But, as I say, the matter had been determined. And I think it's probably been determined uh, once and for all. Mm.
0: Well, Victor, that has been an amazing trot through some very complex cases. And so thank you very much for appearing as an honourable guest on our podcast. I hope you'll agree to do this another
1: time. I'd like to very much, Ian. Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) Thank you.